official recorder. I'll pass some notes around again if you want them. If not, I won't be offended at all. Um, how is everyone this morning? Good? Long week. Um, let's, let's do this. Let's start by reviewing a bit. Um, and I, I found this really helpful for me. Hopefully it is for you. Um, maybe it seems too simple, but let's just walk through and to see visually the, the storyline flow that we've got so far. And then some, like, let's do this here. So we start with, I'm used to junior high where everyone yells the answer. We're used to, we started with Genesis. Genesis. Okay, so we started with Genesis and found out that God is supreme and he rules over the universe. Everything exists through him and for him. And we talked about how he's a a God who creates. He is a God who creates everything good. Uh, We talked about the fall, the rebellion of man and sin. And we talked through all of Genesis and that brought us to, kind of set the trajectory and brought us to next Exodus, where God shows kind of a a whole picture of what salvation looks like and that he's a saving and a rescuing God. Um, He reveals his name, that he is self-existent, he's the I Am, and he leads his people out and he says that he's going to make them into a nation. I know I'm I'm skipping all kinds of things here, but let's just keep going. Genesis, Exodus. Now we get to a book that is actually offline, which is... Leviticus. What I mean by offline is it, it doesn't continue the storyline, it comments on the storyline. Um, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then the next book is in the storyline, which is where the people are in unbelief, wandering in the wilderness, and God shows how he refines his people through those two generations. That's where we get Phineas um, spearing the people through uh, and showing what zeal, a picture of what zeal looks like and how God can transform people to care about holiness and about uh, his honor, his glory. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Next is also offline. And in Deuteronomy, we talked about the the heart. Yeah, and how it's always been about the heart from the beginning. God has always wanted obedience from the heart. It's always been about loving him. And then we came to Joshua, that's right, got in a hurry. Joshua, talked about conquest, we talked about Rahab and how even Gentiles who trust in the Lord will be saved. Uh, Then we came to Judges, the downward spiral, showing that the people need a king. What what else? Yeah, Ruth. Uh, Let's just maybe (laughs) whoop. Then we come to first and second Samuel, and we talk about a king and what a king looks like. That the king is a man after God's own heart. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Isn't Chronicles more of a commentary on the kings? Yeah. So wouldn't it? Kind of be like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's it's sort of offline. That is a fair point, and probably we should group it together. Um, Sorry. No, no, no. That's that's good. In in some translations, they actually do. I think the Russian Bible. It's uh, one, two, three, four. 
they, they group them all together. And I thought uh, I'd heard one is more on the side of Judah and the Judean kings, and the other is on the, more of the focusing on the Samarian kings. Yes, so in Chronicles, you do have more of a focus on Judah, and that's because God is going through and basically showing that even while all the things happening and kings were going on, he's still working his promise through the line of Judah, through the seed of David. The people are asking, hey, we're in exile now. Did God still love us through this whole time? And Chronicles comments and says, yeah, let's go back and look at the highlights of what happened to show that God was loving you and hasn't given up on you. So that one does focus more on Judah. Um, and then after this, do you, do you all remember we had Ezra and Nehemiah? And we can put Esther there as well. Oh, and those round out the storyline of the Old Testament. So in terms of storyline, the Old Testament ends with the people uh, the people returning to the land. But if you remember, do you remember what we said in Ezra and Nehemiah? It's to be continued. To be continued. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about how uh, the story ends on essentially the cliffhanger of this cannot be the end. Exile isn't really over. God's people are still in exile because if you remember, they lay the foundation of the temple and half the people are excited, half the people are weeping because it's so tiny. And you get all these reminders that, hey, this can't be the end. We're still waiting for the full fulfillment of God's promises, which we know points towards the Messiah. Are you all with me at this point? Yes? Makes sense? Okay. Um, what, what we're going to do then today and, and really the rest of our time is all dealing with books that are commentary on the storyline. So today we're going to deal with what's called wisdom literature. And then um, I won't be here next week. Uh, Dan, I think, is teaching. And then the, the two weeks after that we'll deal with the, uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And... So today, we're going to deal with wisdom literature, which includes Job, we'll just touch on him, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, you know, you all know the last two, yes? Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Now, let's get into those. So, with Job... We're, we already spoke about Job, and so the, really the only thing I want to bring out to you is, is to sort of remind you, um, we talked about how Job opens Scripture, and it is like the prologue to the Bible, and it teaches us that we cannot understand life without what? Understanding what's happening in the spiritual. Right, which we can only get from who? From God, if he reveals it. And so... We, we see in Job that, that we have to have God reveal his truth if we're going to understand this life. And what's interesting, and just the one thing to note, we'll come back to this, but um, what does Proverbs tell us? In the beginning, it's talking about uh, how to get wisdom and where it is found. And it actually says the the what of the Lord... The, is the that is drawing from Job 28. 
Job 28 is this whole chapter about where does wisdom come from? How can man have wisdom? And Job ends by saying, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So Solomon comes and picks that back up and says, Remember how Job told us we had to have the fear of the Lord to get any type of wisdom? It has to come from him. Oh yeah, let me explain all of that in, in 31 chapters. So, when that's all, all the note on Job. I just wanted you to see how that kind of ties and leads into wisdom literature. And we'll get when we get to Proverbs, we'll get there. But let's go to Psalms. And I suppose I'll just keep writing because I'm in a writing mood today. But what, instead of going through individual Psalms, what uh, what we're going to do? I hope this is helpful to you. Is just some strategies for how to read the Psalms. And I'll I'll bounce to a few of them as we go. But um, yeah, I, I won't write these down. I'll, I'll go slow though. Uh, if you do want to take notes on them, but. Strategy number one when we come to the Psalms is to know that Psalms are, are worship expressed through poetry and song. Psalms are art. Psalms are um, sculptures with words to honor and worship God. And so as you come to them, you have to read them as, as poetry and as art. And it's important, I think, as believers sometimes, uh, we maybe forget the Bible has this wide breadth of styles of literature, and we need to be able to appreciate and love all of them. When you're in Romans, like we are with Pastor Mike, we, we need the logic and the thinking, and the, it's very uh, cerebral. When you get to Psalms, I'm not telling you to turn your brain on, not that, but, but if your heart isn't engaged, you're missing it. That's the point of the Psalms, is to get the heart engaged. And so as you read it and you see the greatness of God, or the beauty of God, or the kindness of God, or how God provides food, you start to to realize, okay, the Bible is calling for more than just a knowledge transfer here. It's a heart response. And sure, Romans is too, of course. But certain books kind of drive more at one aspect of our being than the other. Um, Narrative stories in Scripture are sort of a dramatic display of doctrine. And you may be like in Exodus, we cheer for God like, yes, that's awesome. But Psalms particularly draws out our affections, our emotions. Um, And so we need to read them that way. And we want to be well-rounded Bible readers. So... Uh, as you come to the Psalms, and, and keeping in mind that they are poetry or song, Hebrew poetry is expressed as uh, two, it, it is always two or more lines that, that are interplaying with each other. They can either be synonymous, so one, um, you know, my, I'm a man, my name is Andrew. Those are ones explaining the other, they're synonymous. One can build on the other. I'm a man and I'm 27 years old, 26 years old. Uh, I don't know how I got my age wrong right there. Uh, those, one builds on the other. Or they can be antithetical. Um, you know, the, the wise man does this, but the fool does this. And so as we're reading through Psalms, and this applies to Proverbs, and you start to, to see these couplets together, and you start to realize, okay, I'm supposed to think through this, and, oh, he's defining what he just said, or, oh, he's painting a... a comparison between these two are these are some of the, the tactics that they use so we need to, to pay attention um, a second thing and this this kind of leads into it uh, so first psalms are, are worship expressed through poetry and song second psalms are for meditation uh, something I've been convicted about recently is I don't meditate on scripture that's not 100% true but um, our, our lives are very fast paced which I don't think is necessarily wrong but 
there can be a temptation to crowd out times where we are not actually feeling productive and like we're accomplishing something. And sitting and thinking about God's word isn't necessarily outwardly productive. Um, but, but Psalms and Proverbs, they're designed to make us sit and think. And David says, uh, while I mused, the fire burned inside. If your heart feels dull and dry, meditation might be the cure. Probably is the cure. To sit and think about what God has said. And how does that apply to this aspect of my life? And how does that apply to this aspect? And, wow, if God can... If God is in charge of making it rain to, to make the crops grow, to bring food to my table, that, when I start to think through that and what that means and what it meant that I have a meal on the table, and wow, now I really have a heart of praise towards him when I sit down to my food. So meditation starts to fuel that. And Psalms and Proverbs are, are for meditation and for meditating on. Um, I wrote down Psalm 56. I don't remember what I wanted to say here. Um, let's see, let's see. Yeah, okay, just just to, from Psalm 56. Think about if you sat and thought about this. David's uh, David is writing, and it tells us the Philistines have seized him. And so he's in, he's in a life and death situation. And he's talking to God, and in verse 8 of Psalm 56, he says, You have kept count of my tossings, tossings on my bed. Put, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Think about meditating on the fact that you don't even know how many times you tossed in your bed last night. We tossed a lot in our bed last night because Nathan is not feeling well. And we think, oh, it's so rough and this and that. But God says, I, I know every time you turned in the bed. Every time. I know every tear you cried. Every time. I have them all recorded. And to sit and think about that and the care that God has for us, that's when your heart can rest and trust and I don't know I, I think it's important to remember Psalms are for meditation um, number three Psalms are often about the Davidic king so we said that uh, that someone is coming who can crush the serpent it's narrowed down to Abraham's family it's narrowed down to Judah's line it's narrowed down uh, in 2 Samuel to David's family and we find out that that king's going to kind of unite and fulfill all of God's promises he'll be the Messiah the Savior he'll be God with us um, and many of the Psalms are David speaking in a way that deals with the relationship of of the role of king this king messiah king to god or to the people and so um a decent example of this uh in junior high we just went over psalm 63 and the first eight verses are very easily applicable uh oh god you are my god earnestly i seek you my soul thirsts for you uh like in a dry and weary land my soul will be satisfied as with rich food we talked about with the kids like it's like god god is satisfying like eating a good steak but then you get to verse nine and he talks about those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. And he starts getting into all this other stuff. And the kids are asking, wait, wait, wait. So are you saying that non-believers today are going to get, you know, uh, eaten by jackals? Yeah. Is, that, is that what's going on here? And I, it's helpful to remember, uh, if you remember in Numbers, we talked about how the way Israel camps the way they march through the wilderness, the way they march around the city of Jericho, everything they do is designed to put on display the God of creation is our God, and we are for him. He is leading us. He is the one that is um, going before us. And we remember Rahab says, we heard about you. We know. So it worked. Point being, when you have nations in David's time that are 
continually going against the nation of Israel. It's not just a political war. This is, they know what Israel stands for, and they are purposefully opposing God. And so sometimes when we come to these psalms, we need to realize, okay, this isn't a saying, and you all know this, but this isn't saying that God is going to, to give unbelievers over to jackals. But what it is saying is those who obstinately and continually oppose God and his rule, and ultimately the true Davidic king, the Messiah, they will ultimately be defeated and destroyed. Um, for David, that was a, on this earth, real life promise and request, and, and that was a specific scenario, but the application still carries on into our day. Uh, is that making sense? Yes? Okay. Um, let's, let's keep moving. Uh, Psalms flesh out narrative. Number four, Psalms flesh out narrative. Uh, we know that Moses was the most humble man. It tells us that in scripture. But then in Psalm 90, we get one of his prayers recorded. And we can see him saying in verse three, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night, you get in verse 12, Moses saying, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In the last verse of the psalm, Moses says, let uh, the favor of the Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. You start to have, in narrative we hear, oh yeah, Moses is, is the most humble man. But in Psalms, we see it fleshed out. We see his prayer. We see what does it look, what does humility look like? What does the prayer of a humble man really look like? And so we have lots, that's just one tiny example. Lots of examples where you have narrative giving us a, a picture and an angle to make a theological point, and then the Psalms come in and say, okay, we're going to flesh this out. We're going to give give uh, kind of the, the some of the, I don't know, real life heart aspect to it that, that the narrative may not give us as, as readily. Um, Number, I think we're on five. Uh, don't be afraid of imprecatory psalms. Does anyone know imprecatory psalms, what I'm talking about? I'm going to get you. I'm, yeah, God, crush, their, crush the teeth of the wicked. Uh, let's just go to the, probably the worst one. Uh, in Psalm 137, the psalmist prays, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. To put it in colloquial speech, uh, happy, blessed, by, be, blessed be the one who takes your little infants and smashes them into the, into the rocks. Hmm. Sounds horrible. And it is horrible until you realize that God prophesied in Isaiah 13 that that is what would happen to Babylon because of how they treated his people and because of their sin. And so what the psalmist is saying is not, I have vindictive pleasure in, in you know, crushing infants. What the psalmist is saying is, God, keep your word. God, keep your promise. God, do what you said you would do. And, and there is a sense in which we can still apply these today. I think every time I drive by the uh, Planned Parenthood, I pray, God, save everybody in there, make them unable to do their work, stop their, you know, turn the building into something useful or burn it to the ground. I'm not asking that the people would be killed or anything. I want them to be saved. But uh, I, we can still pray that God would bring justice on the earth. And, and that's what the psalmist is doing when he prays in purgatory psalms. So keep that in mind. Um, that's a good example. I, I also, when I see the fortune telling, I always pray they go out of business. Yeah, exactly, right? You know, it's, it's true. Um, okay. There's, a f there's other things on here. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll email it out if I think of it, but I, I want to keep moving. 
um, I think those are the important ones to keep in mind and um, the others just to read them too. Uh, God's word is central and the king embodies that. Uh, keep that in mind. God is a missionary God. Um, I can't resist. The, uh, the phrase, uh, if you've heard it, to the ends of the earth. Or the ends of the earth will praise him. Or That comes up in the Psalms quite a bit. And um, it, it especially, what's amazing is if you go search this, you can do this in... You might get some extras in English. Uh, you can... You can search this phrase, and it's very specific, and it's always tied to Messiah. That the Messiah is going to have this dominion to the ends of the earth. Guess what phrase Luke chooses to use when he's talking to the disciples, or when he's describing uh, what's being said to the disciples in Acts 1 verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. Our, our evangelistic task is to take the dominion of the Messiah and, and share that abroad to the ends of the earth. And it's the plan that starts all the way throughout the Old Testament. God says, the ends of the earth, all the nations are going to praise me. Um, tons more to say on that and exciting and fun, but um, it's, it's for another day and another time. And we're going to keep moving through to Proverbs. To Proverbs. I hope that whets your appetite and, and makes you want to read the Psalms. They're beautiful and fun and exciting. Um. Proverbs is mostly written during the reign of Solomon and mostly by Solomon. Do you all remember when Solomon reigns, is it a very good or a very bad time in Israel? Yes. It's, It's called the Golden Age. It's, it's the closest example of what it could look like with the true Davidic king on the throne carrying out the Davidic cut. It's the closest example of what could be, and then we see that Solomon's not the guy. He, it, it fails, um, but we get this glimpse of what the kingdom could look like with a, a good, righteous, holy king. We know that Jesus is going to return and do that. But what Proverbs then becomes is it carries out this... We talked about how... The actions that Israel did carried a theological message to the nations. Everything they did was a statement about who God is. We know this. Actions speak louder than words. And so what Israel does, how they live, sends this message to the world. Well, that still applies today. And so what wisdom is, is the way to live to display to the world who our God is. That is, that is what Proverbs is, is doing, to carry this, this message of theology about who God is. And what it does also is, what did, what did Satan say that Adam and Eve could have in the garden? You'll eat the fruit, and what's going to happen? Yeah, you'll, you'll be like God. He says... Uh, let me find the exact verse. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what Proverbs comes in and says, I mean, even you start to see similar wording in, in chapter 1, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. And it talks about in wisdom enlightening the eyes. And what the point is, is this true wisdom, true what, what was falsely presented in the garden can actually be gained through 
knowing how to take God's word and apply it in different life situations. But the, the, the message being proclaimed when we live wisely is Eden wasn't lost. You're going to see this over and over again with wisdom. When we worship God the right way, it, we're proclaiming the relationship in Eden wasn't lost. When we get to Song of Solomon, we, when we do marriage and relationships right, we proclaim the relationship between husband and wife in Eden, it wasn't fully lost. It can still be regained. When we live as Proverbs describes, we proclaim to the world that true wisdom and true understanding and true ability to take dominion of the earth the, way, the right way hasn't been lost. There is a way back to Eden, and that way back to Eden is through God and through his word, and that's the only way back. And you start to, I, I don't know about you, but this whole paradigm of God bring us back to Eden, you start to see the world and realize, oh, yeah, that, that's what they're selling me at Christmas time. Get Get the Apple Watch, it'll take you back to Eden. And it doesn't, up front, it might not seem that way, but start to, if you start to think about it and feel, think about your own desires and your own heart and what's going on, it is, it, it'll make, you know, wear this, wear this perfume or this cologne. Your relationship will be like Eden. That's not the words they use, but that's the messaging behind it at the root and at the bit. Just start thinking about it. That's, the world is longing to go back to everything right as it should be, but they can't get there. And Ecclesiastes is going to hit on that. But with true wisdom, God is saying, here's the way to actually live in this world. And yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll take you back there. Trust me. Trust my Messiah. Okay. I'm doing a lot of side notes and ranting today. Um, Proverbs. So, uh, Proverbs is about how to live according to reality as God has set it up. How do we live according to the way that God has set up the world and according to reality? And how do we have a witness that God can restore wisdom and bring us back to Eden? Proverbs is set in a kind of a royal setting, and so the idea is this is how the king is supposed to rule, but the extension is this is how the king is supposed to rule. It should filter down to everybody else too. So Proverbs does apply to everyone, but ultimately, and why this matters is the only one that can really truly embody all of what Proverbs is, is guess who? Jesus. Because he's the only one that can embody all of what the king is and should be. And so the true king is the one who fully embodies Proverbs. And that doesn't happen until Jesus. But we're trying to be like him. And so we get to, to embody this in a little way as we live out Proverbs. So uh, Proverbs is about how to live out God's law in everyday life. Uh, here's another important point with Proverbs, uh, helpful to think of. Sort of this undergirding idea in Proverbs is this. There is not one second of any of our lives where God's word can't be applied. Truth can't be brought in and brought to bear on every, and I literally mean every second. How long you shower, God's word can help define how you make that choice. How you, I mean, you, we could come up with tons of examples, and Aaron's laughing because I'm the king in junior high coming up with weird examples. Uh, but, but that's kind of the idea behind Proverbs is, look, God's wisdom can apply to every single detail, and it matters. It matters what we do with those. Um, what else? What else? So uh, let's go to one other note. Okay, so the word wisdom, um, the word wisdom literally just means skill. You have back when they were building the tabernacle, it says to find certain men who had wisdom in metalworking or that God would give them a spirit of wisdom to build the tabernacle. The idea is skill. Wisdom in this sense is is skill to live the way that that God wants us to. It's the skill to take any... Uh, here, let me let me go to... Um, I wasn't going to bring this verse up, and now I am, and I didn't write it down. Uh, you have 31 chances. 
I know. <laughs> Here it is. In chapter 2, uh, it's talking about the value of wisdom. And it just makes this comment that then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. The idea is this. When you have wisdom, you can come to any situation in life, take the truth of God's word, filter it through this, this grid, and have the discernment to know, okay, here's what I do in this situation. And it doesn't mean that, I mean, the, there are certain situations where multiple choices are godly and good and fine and what college you go to or uh, certain things like that. Uh, we talk with, with kids sometimes about those types of decisions where there's multiple godly options that are all okay. Wisdom isn't saying you're going to know every detail of, you know, down to this is the person I should marry for sure. But what wisdom can tell you is, okay, this is a situation where I, I can... I can look at these different options, and I can say, yeah, I'm going to go this way because of these biblical principles. And so it, it really helps you to decide and discern every good path in your life. Uh, Proverbs does start in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, the whole cornerstone to getting wisdom is that you approach it in saying, I can't get it on my own. Lord, you have to give it to me. Lord, give me a listening heart like Solomon asked for so that I can, have, I can grow in wisdom. Uh, this is mimicking, like we said, Job, saying there is no place else to go. God has how we are to live this life. And so step one is to come to him saying, yes, I, I fear you, I trust you, uh, I need you to reveal to me uh, wisdom. And so that's how we, we read this, this book. Um, the first nine chapters are, are basically uh, motivations and reasons to get wisdom. And it's a father talking to his son in the royal court about what, what it means to be wise, why you ought to be wise. And then when you get to chapters uh, 10 and on, you get different sections. Chapters 10 through 12 talk about how to make a living in a way that honors the Lord. Chapters 13, 14, and these are generally structured. They're not... They're not hard structure, but there is structure. It's not random. Uh, chapters 13 and 14 talk about uh, perseverance and how to persevere in the different aspects of life. 15 talks about the tongue and how to use your words. 16 and 17 are about authority, how to relate to human authority, divine authority. 18 and 19 come back to the tongue and its power and how we use it. 20 and 21, again, talk about living under God's authority. And so what we start to see is this picture of, of the wise man and the fool. And really what it comes down to is the wise man takes God's word and applies it to every situation of life, and the fool refuses the instruction of God's word and ignores it. It's really simple. Not easy, but simple. So we already hit these, but strategies for reading Proverbs, they're not random. Uh, oh, they're not promises. Uh, the famous one... Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, there's a translation issue there. It's more likely a warning saying, uh, train up a child in his own way. Let him go his own way. And even when he's old, he's not going to change. So the warning is, be careful. But regardless, whether it's one or the other on the translation, this is not the promise of train your child in this way and it'll always perfectly haven't you seen godly parents that their kids go off off um, when we read proverbs they're not promises they're, they're, they're principles of truth that generally uh, apply keep that in mind um, and then 
Yeah, let's, the, the one last thing, we mentioned meditation, but a good example of this um, is in chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. This is a good example of why, why Proverbs are designed to make you slow down and meditate. Answer not, or do not answer, a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Do not answer? Answer. And the point is this. It's purposefully written. Solomon's not... That's stupid. He knows what he wrote, and the purpose is to make you sit and think, okay, there must be a time to answer, and a time not to answer. I know, look at that. The next lines, just tell me when. Don't answer him if you're going to, by answering him, stoop down to his level and be just like him. Yet, you do have to answer him. If You have to answer in a way that will not let the fool leave thinking he's wise in his own eyes. So we need to be able to, to have a fool come to us, and he says folly. We need to be able to take that folly apart, show that he's a fool, without doing it in a way that makes us a fool ourselves. Oh, okay. That's pretty neat. So they're designed to make us slow down and think. And especially in our culture, at least for me, that's one hard and two really good and healthy for our hearts. To slow down and think about what God is saying and how that fits together. Everybody good? Ecclesiastes. It always goes faster than I think it will. Um, That's my fault. I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes. This is written most likely, they think, towards the end of Solomon's life. So Solomon has lived his whole life. He's tried all these different things to get pleasure. And he writes this at the end to tell, hey, here's the real meaning of life. Here's the real way to get happiness. Here's the real way to be uh, satisfied and joyful in your life and for your life to have true eternal meaning. And so this is Solomon walking through every kind of theory of how to get the good life. And just ripping it apart and deconstructing it. And, and, uh, the, the, the first sort of, uh, I, I think the first person I heard bring this up was Tim Ma. And I, I love this because it kind of hits you in the face, but it's good. You need it. Uh, especially in junior high and high school and college and a young adult like me. So uh, he, he starts this whole thing by saying, Words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is Solomon talking. Vanity of vanities. Everything's vanity. And he goes down and talks about through how it's so cyclical. This world just is in cycles. And then he says in verse 10, Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in ages before us. Hey, young person, you're not going to change the world. You can't come up with anything that's actually new. Any technology, yeah, it's been there before. Any, It's all been there before. Oh, and by the way, verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things. No will, will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. We ask the junior high kids all the time, what was your great-grandpa's name? Nobody knows. I don't know my great-grandpa's name. Uh, point is, yeah, you're not going to change the world, and nobody's going to remember you. Sorry. That's the truth. No one's going to remember. You're not going to make this amazing, huge difference. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, sort of. But but not in 100 years. Not in 200 years. And so he starts out by basically just destroying everything that we would think is, oh, I, I, can, I can make a difference this way, or I can, I can 
have real pleasure in life this way. He goes in chapter 2 and says, uh, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. And, and he, he says, I'm, I'm just going to go, this is kind of the, the American dream Israel version. Uh, I'm just going to get the girls, I'm going to get the gold, I'm going to get the stuff, the houses, the palaces, the cars, I guess chariots. I, I'm going to do all of it. Uh, and it leaves him empty. He he comes in and he comes out on the back end saying, I, Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I ex- had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It didn't satisfy it wasn't enough. It didn't. It didn't fulfill. It wasn't good. And so uh, he keeps going and and talks about. Um, if you look in the next two sections, he's going to basically talk about. Well, maybe, maybe if, maybe through work we can find meaning. Through the work that we do, we can find ultimate meaning and pleasure. And and basically he comes back and says this quite a few times, but ends up basically saying, "Great, work hard, earn a living, save it up, give it on to your child. You can't control what he does with it. You're going to die. They can spend it however they want. They might squander it. Good luck. How's that working out for you?" <laughs> and he just keeps destroying one thing after another. He'll go through later. Uh, I think it's in. Basically, chapter 4, where he says, okay, great, be really motivated, work really hard, Uh, you know, grind it out. Nope, that won't work. Okay, fine, be lazy. Just just sit back and enjoy it. Nope, that won't work either. Uh, There is no pleasure in anything apart from, and then you get to chapter 5 and you start to get to the secret. Apart from doing it to please God and doing it in the fear of God and having an eternal perspective. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Without an eternal perspective, a fear of the Lord, a trust in Him, life doesn't have meaning. And with it, any life has meaning. You have a lot, you have a little, you have hard circumstances, you have good circumstances. All of that is secondary to, I fear the Lord, I trust Him, um, and I'm living for Him. And He... He hits on this even in um, in chapter 7. He basically goes through uh, and talks about how, if you notice, it'll say, um, sorrow, verse 3, sorrow is better than uh, laughter. Well, here, let me even go up a little bit. Um, a good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death, better than the day of birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. His point is, you have to have an eternal perspective. You have to think outside of this life to really have joy. And that only comes uh, that only comes from God. That only comes from God. Chapter 8, there's an interesting part uh, towards the middle section there, uh, verses 6 through about 13-ish, uh, maybe, no, even down to 16, 17, where he basically says, hey, you look around, you see social injustice, you see one man oppressing another, you see uh, everyone, war everywhere, you see how it lies heavy on man, there's no discharge from war, wickedness uh, delivers those who are given over to it. I saw that one man had power over another man to his hurt. And then he gets down to the end of the section. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. The point is this. The only way to, to live in a world with so much evil and wickedness and oppression and not go crazy 
is to rest in God and to know, yeah, he'll, he'll make it right in the end. You'll see in the last line of the book, he basically says that exactly. And I think we can jump over to there now. Let's jump over to there. Very last line. You really want life to have meaning. You really want to ha- live a life that is honoring, pleasing to God. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. My dad used to quote this to me all the time, and I'm thankful for it, but he never quoted the second verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments, and live with an eternal perspective. Because that is the only way that that this life will make sense. Song of Solomon. Uh, This is also written during the Golden Age, probably before Solomon takes a thousand wives, because it seems like he's a pretty godly guy at this point. And if he had a thousand wives and he's writing this, it's sort of like, hmm, I don't know if I want your marriage advice. But, um, But he's probably writing this early in his life. And the point of Song of Solomon is this. We, through uh, relationships between a husband and a wife, can put on display the theological message that, yes, there is a way back to Eden. And it's through the gospel. It's through Christ. It's through being restored and recreated. And so we get this picture. uh, where, Where am I getting this whole Eden thing? Yes, Israel's an agricultural society. But Solomon doesn't have to use a garden metaphor through the entire thing and use garden imagery throughout all of their relationship, but he does. And if you're an Israelite and you hear garden imagery, it's really clear what they're talking about. They're they're echoing back to Eden. And so this whole interchange, you go through kind of three portions. You go through... um, the courtship portion of the relationship, the wedding portion, the marriage portion. And, and Israel is making this statement. Our God is the God who created human sexuality. It is good, it is beautiful, but it is not ultimate. And we can restore this relationship. Just like we deal with today, in the ancient Near East, they were dealing with the same things. Societies were saying, love is sex. Love is all about the physical. That's all it is. That's what a relationship is. And Israel's holding up and saying, no, 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 no. It's so much more than that. It's so much broader, so much deeper, so much more beautiful. And that's what our relationships depict. And that's what is, this is convicting for me to even say, that's what's on the line in how our marriages are. The message we proclaim to the world. When the, the world looks at the church and sees our marriages, our marriages should proclaim, yeah, there's a way back to Eden. And look at our marriages. We have a little microcosm of it here. That, that's hard, but, but that's the, the truth. Two last notes and then we'll be done. Chapter 4 describes their wedding night, and in chapter 5, uh, verse 1, you, you basically have, if you see there, uh, they, there's a description of, of their wedding night and of intimacy together, and then it says, eat friends, be, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Most commentators think that that is basically divinely spoken, because are the friends with them in the bedroom on the wedding night? No. But who is always with us at all times? God. And this is God saying, this intimacy in a marriage is good and beautiful and right. And just as a, I don't know, by way of application here, um, I think it's important as Christian parents, Christian grandparents, Christians in general, to, to 
continue the message of sex is good and beautiful and right within its proper bounds. We are, we are not anti-sex. We're anti-distorted sex. Um, and, and so there's just this beautiful picture here of what that looks like, what that means. There's restraint. There's um, wisdom. But there's also an affirmation that, that intimacy is beautiful and that what relationships look like. Um, they get into an argument at one point and then they come back together and it basically shows that through marriage and through the uh, after the courtship period and after the wedding night period when difficulties come, there's a volitional aspect to love. To say, um, we are going to keep pursuing one another. We are going to keep uh, going back to the love that we first had. And so, um, I don't know, just applicable for marriage and for life and helpful. So let's go ahead and finish for today and then... Uh, we will get into the prophets in, in two weeks. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that it gives. Thank you that you give wisdom. Um, like the disciples said to Jesus, uh, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Um, we love you, and we just want to see more of the depth and the beauty and the grandeur of who you are and your person. We don't want stuff from you. We don't, want, um, we don't even necessarily want eternal life for its own sake. We want you. Uh, And so stamp that on our hearts and our minds today. Help us to live with wisdom and eternal perspective. Amen.